Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. Turn your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Uh, There's just so much in this book that is uh, so relevant to what's going on and, and where we are as a nation. I just couldn't get away from the book of Daniel yet. So turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, where we have one of the most popular and well-known Bible stories of them all, the account of Daniel, Daniel's deliverance from the lion's den. Now, as you're turning, just a couple of things to note. First of all, the second half of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, contain the prophetic visions that God gave to Daniel concerning the future of the world. But the first six chapters of Daniel are the career of Daniel in chronological order. In the first chapter, Daniel is probably a teen, a young teen, 14 to 15 years old. But as we open up the chapter 6 this morning, Daniel is, is an old man, probably in his 80s. And so we'll see that even in, in his old age, there was no absolutely no wavering, no compromise. He remained true to God throughout his entire life. Because of the length of the passage, we'll just read it as we go, uh, go along. In verses 1 to 3, we'll see Daniel's position under Darius. If you'll look at verses 1 and 2, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Daniel chapter 5 records the fall of the Babylonian Empire. It was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, who were united together as one great power under King Cyrus in, in 550 B.C. And with the fall of Babylon, the gold head of Nebuchadnezzar's image representing the Babylonian Empire has now given way to the chest and arms of silver, the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel tells us at the end of chapter 5 that Darius the Mede ruled the kingdom of Babylon after its fall. Now the name Darius literally means holder of the scepter, and it most likely was a title of honor rather than a personal name. Now, scholars have disagreed concerning the exact identity of Darius, and and I don't want to take time this morning to get into all of that, but suffice it to say that Daniel was accurate when he wrote that Darius received the kingdom and was made king. And to establish himself and his rule over the territory formerly ruled by Babylon, Darius appointed 120 satraps. And these these men were responsible, they, they were provincial administrators responsible for uh, the oversight, the security, and the collection of tribute for a certain geographical area. Apparently, Darius was concerned that the satraps would enrich themselves at his expense. 
And so he also appointed three high officials, or as the New King James Version says, governors to be over the 120 satraps. He wanted to create a system of accountability which would prevent him from suffering loss, according to verse 2. The king needed, therefore, trustworthy men for these high positions, and one of the three men he chose was Daniel. Now, we don't know how Darius came to be familiar with Daniel. He, he must have heard of Daniel's reputation. Perhaps he was aware of Daniel's interpretation of the handwriting on the wall the night Babylon fell. However he came to know about Daniel, he recognized in him a man who could be trusted. And so he appointed him to this high position. And we read in verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel became distinguished above all the others because the verse says, an excellent spirit was in him. In other words, God's hand was upon Daniel, enabling and empowering him to carry out his duties. And though the text does not explicitly say so, we're safe to conclude that, as before, God gave Daniel favor in the sight of this king. He obviously did. I mean, how else could it be explained that Daniel, a Hebrew who had been in, in the court of the Babylonian kingdom Darius had just overthrown, how, how could we account for Daniel's rise so quickly to a position of power? The king saw in Daniel a man of wisdom, integrity, and, and faithfulness. Here was a man he could trust in a high leadership position. You know, it's often said today that, that every man has his price. That's not the way it was with Daniel. The fear of God ruled in his heart. His honesty was beyond question. His life was marked by moral excellence and unblemished integrity, and, and he could be relied upon to be unquestionably loyal to the king. And so recognizing Daniel's abilities, Darius planned to promote him, actually placing him in charge of the entire kingdom. But when word of the king's intentions got out, the other officials became jealous of Daniel's success and his favor with the king. And they, they could not tolerate for one moment a Jew being in such a high position. And so they began to plot Daniel's ruin. In verses 4 to 9, we have the official's plot. Notice verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. As hard as Daniel his enemies tried to find some basis for accusing him to the king to, to get him removed from office, they could find absolutely nothing. Nothing, because he was faithful, and no error or fault, it says, was found in him. And this certainly does not imply that Daniel was sinless, but rather that he was a man of great integrity, blameless in the conduct of his professional life. I mean, there were no skeletons in Daniel's closet. I mean, imagine that. 
Imagine looking as hard as you possibly could at a public servant who had been in office some 70 years and finding absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, that's beyond amazing. And that certainly says a lot for Daniel. And being in the public eye is not an easy place to be. Envious people are always attempting to bring down a a political rival, looking for dirt wherever they think they might find it. But when Daniel's enemies examined his life, they could find nothing to attack, nothing to accuse. That's only a minor detail. Not a problem for them. They'd come up with something. In verse 5, we read, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Because Daniel had a reputation for being devoted to God, these men knew that, that they were not going to be able to trap him in some kind of evil. But they also knew that he would be faithful to his God in all circumstances. And so they quickly arrived at the conclusion that that they would somehow have to use Daniel's faithfulness to God against him. They would have to devise a plan whereby Daniel's religious beliefs, convictions, and, and practices would come into conflict with loyalty to the king. And so they decided to trap Daniel by creating a law to ban him from worshiping God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But you see, that presented a bit of a difficulty for these men because the Medes and the Persians had no law prohibiting monotheistic worship. Again, that's only a minor problem. They decided to make one. We read in verses 6 and 7, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And so they came before the king representing themselves as the spokesman for for all of the government officials of the kingdom. But of course, that was a, a blatant lie because Daniel was one of the highest officials and he certainly wasn't in on this. But their deception, no doubt, led the king to believe Daniel also agreed with their proposal. And they approached Darius with, with the flattering suggestion that a law be passed that no one would be allowed to pray to any god or man except the king. And this for 30 days. And they also suggested that if anyone disobeyed the law, that they should be thrown into a den of hungry lions. <laughs> Seems like a bit of overkill, doesn't it? <laughs> Darius likely saw this as a political rather than religious ordinance, and on the surface, the whole thing looked harmless. And the time limit of one month, that that seemed reasonable. I mean, after this, the people would be free to resume their customary worship. I mean, Darius was no theological giant. 
And obviously didn't realize this phony ordinance specifically targeted Daniel. The leaders then said in verse 8, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. They wanted the law done in the most binding of ways according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. You say, well, what does that mean? It was an established principle in the Medo-Persian Empire that when a king formally signed and instituted an injunction or a decree, it was so binding that not even the king himself could change it. The decrees of a Persian king were unchangeable because he was thought to speak for the gods who could never be wrong and never needed to change their minds. So Daniel's enemies wanted this law passed and signed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians so that even the king himself could not change it to rescue Daniel. And their flattery fed the king's pride and He quickly agreed, and the law was written out. I mean, after all, on the surface, it seemed to be in the king's best interest. It magnified him and his office, compelling every subject in in the former Babylonian kingdom to acknowledge his rule would also contribute to the unification of the Babylonian realm under the authority of the new Persian Empire. (laughs) But the king should have known better. A fact he no doubt reminded himself of many, many times during the night Daniel was in the lion's den. Nevertheless, we read in verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the document and injunction. And he signed the law, little realizing where it would lead. When Daniel learned about the decree the king had foolishly signed, he no doubt knew at once where it came from and exactly what it meant. For 30 days, according to this new law, he would have to stop his customary practice of worshiping God by praying in front of his open window in the direction of Jerusalem, or else be thrown into the lion's den. And someone might say, 30 days? I mean, what's the big deal? That's not too bad. It's only 30 days. It's, it's not as if he, has to, he had to bow down. It wasn't as if he had to bow down before an idol as his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told they must do. And he could let his devotion slide for a month. And after all, there, there are a lot of professed Christians today who probably allow a month or more to slide by without any meaningful devotions. So what's the big deal? Well, we may think like that today. Many do. But not Daniel. What would he do? What would you and I do? Spurgeon, commenting on this chapter, said, Suppose the law of the land were proclaimed, no man shall pray during the remainder of this month on pain of being cast into a den of lions. How many of you would pray? I think there would be rather a scanty number at the prayer meeting. Not but what the attendance at prayer meetings is scanty enough now. 
But if there were the penalty of being cast into a den of lions, I'm afraid the prayer meeting would be postponed for a month owing to pressing business and manifold engagements of one kind and another. What did Daniel do? Well, in verses 10 to 15, we see that he's entrapped by the plot. Notice verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. The New King James says, as was his custom since early days. In other words, this is what he had done throughout his entire life. This was his custom since early days. This was Daniel's daily practice. I mean, not a single day went by that Daniel didn't pray on his knees before God in front of an open window facing toward Jerusalem. And so the the nation's laws might change. But God had not changed. And Daniel was not going to allow the law to deter him from the daily practice of his faith. And so he simply continued his pattern of prayer, as was his custom, which obviously made it easy for his enemies to gather the evidence necessary to convict Daniel. But Daniel refused to be deterred. He continued worshiping God, praying and giving thanks to him as he had always done. And so here was Daniel a minority of one man among many hostile enemies. He apparently didn't even have the support of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they're not mentioned as they were in the incident involving Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. No doubt if they would have been present, they would have supported Daniel, so perhaps they'd been transferred to other parts of the empire. Or perhaps by this time, they had actually died. I mean, Daniel was elderly in his, in his 80s. And so here was one man standing alone in the midst of an utterly pagan culture. All were against him. And anyone, anyone who knew his convictions would have laughed at them. Yet in all of this vast empire, Daniel was the one man who we could say really had it together. He knew there was one true God, and he knew who that true God was, and he knew that that God was powerful. He knew that that God could deliver him if he chose to do so. But above all, Daniel knew that obeying and serving the one true God had to be the supreme goal in his life. We need to point out something important here about Daniel. What he knew, he practiced openly. You know, some people practice their their faith in God privately and and only confess Him uh, if they're asked. Probably because they don't want to offend anyone. They They don't want to be seen as a religious radical. I mean, heaven forbid. 
And so they back off and they, they keep silent. They keep their convictions private and, and to themselves. Well, Daniel didn't do that. And in this, he showed true greatness. Because instead of hiding his convictions, he knelt down before his window in the side of Babylon and he prayed as he always had done. Unafraid, undeterred, he knelt down and prayed as he always had done. I don't know about you, but I I believe we need more Daniels. More people who are willing to bring their awareness of God and his laws off the reservation, so to speak. People who are willing to open their windows, so to speak, and to serve and, and honor God before a watching world. And someone might say, well, look, all Daniel had to do was stop praying openly in front of an open window for 30 days. So why did he just simply close the window and and pray out of sight? Better yet, why did he pray at night in bed? I mean, after all, isn't, isn't prayer a private matter? You know, what compelled him to pray publicly, knowing it would bring him to the lion's den? Well, today we could ask the same type question. Why not worship at home? And after all, isn't our relationship with God a personal matter? So why gather together corporately when we're being told by the government not to and to stay at home? Why? Well, for the same reasons Daniel refused to pray in private. Number one, private disobedience would have been hypocritical. And it would have hindered his testimony. You see, Daniel's enemies expected him to worship publicly, disobeying the law. That's why they had it passed in the first place. They knew he was faithful to worship his God. Secondly, it was necessary in order for Daniel to to persevere in his normal disciplines of godliness. Daniel had a lifelong habit of praying toward Jerusalem three times a day. His enemies knew this, and they were confident that he was going to continue. I mean, Daniel was not going to set aside the biblical practices that were normal in pursuing godliness. And number three, Daniel refused to pray in private because this particular law was utterly inconsistent with and contrary to God's law. And to make that point, Daniel had to publicly violate that law. And what Daniel did in praying toward Jerusalem was according to Scripture. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon asked God to give special notice to the prayers of his people when they prayed toward Jerusalem and the temple. He said, may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people when they pray toward this place. It does not seem possible for Daniel to pray to God toward Jerusalem other than by literally looking in that direction. And this meant his window would be open and he would be visible when he prayed. And so he did. He prayed publicly in defiance of the law of the Medes and the Persian because he believed there was no other choice. To do otherwise would have have been to compromise, and Daniel would not compromise his deeply held conviction. He would not compromise the Word of God. And Daniel prayed, really, not not out of rebellion against the king. Rather, he defied the king's order out of obedience to the greater command of God. 
Just as the apostles would later say, we must obey God rather than men. We gather corporately for worship when we've been told by the government not to because our freedom of worship is a command of God, not a privilege granted to us by the state. Collective and corporate worship is not only commanded in the Scriptures, but it is essential. It is absolutely essential. It is a vital part of our spiritual life and well-being, and, and the government's restrictions would prohibit us from practicing our faith according to the very clear commands of God's Word. Biblically speaking, it has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. Caesar himself is subject to God. No nation... No government or government official has a right to restrict, limit, or forbid the assembling of believers for worship. And so when any government official issues orders regulating worship, such as capping attendance or banning singing or prohibiting gatherings and services, well, then they've gone far beyond the legitimate bounds of their God-ordained authority as civic officials. And they have taken to themselves authority that God expressly grants only to the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign over his kingdom, which is the church. As someone said recently, Christ is Lord over Caesar, not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. And we regret that the government has placed us in this position. But we must humbly and, and respectfully disagree with the restrictions they continue to place upon the church because we must obey God rather than men. And like Daniel, we meet corporately not out of rebellion against the government. Rather, we are defying the government's order out of obedience to the greater command of God. Back to Daniel. I mean, think about this. Daniel's reputation for spiritual commitment was so great that even his enemies knew that he would obey God rather than bow to the king's decree. Boy, that sure can't be said about a lot of people in churches today. Daniel's enemies knew that he would not compromise. And so we read, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So they got together, went to Daniel's place. At the time, they knew that, that he would be praying. And sure enough, there's Daniel deep in prayer. The NIV translates verse 11, Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. I like that translation because there's no doubt in my mind that is exactly what Daniel was doing. I and mean, he was not oblivious to the peril that he was in. 
mean, even though his outward calm might make one think that he was not taking the threat of execution seriously, Daniel was very much aware of the danger he was in. He knew that he would most likely lose his life. So no doubt he was asking God to help him. But he might honor the Lord either in in life or in death, whichever God and his sovereignty determine. And after finding Daniel praying, we read the we read in verses 12 and 13, these men came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah. Notice they didn't say, Daniel, one of your three governors, one of the high officials, the man you were going to appoint over the entire kingdom. No, they want to be as derogatory as they can. Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. I mean, these guys were not stupid. They approached the king very, very carefully because accusing a man the king really liked was a, was a really dangerous proposition. And so they began by asking the king about the law which had just gone into effect, and and he reiterated that he had indeed passed the law, forbidding any prayer to be made except to him for the next 30 days. He also acknowledged again the penalty for breaking this law was to be cast into the lion's den. And then at this point, the conspirators shocked the king with the news that Daniel, Daniel had violated this new law. In fact, they said he, he, he's not only broken the law once, he persists in violating the law, you know, showing complete disregard for the king and, and his authority. Of course, that wasn't true. Daniel intended no disrespect for the king, only a higher, much higher respect for God. Verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. I mean, Daniel was, or excuse me, Darius was greatly distressed. No doubt very displeased with himself for signing such a law. He knew it was his fault. He was at fault. He knew it. And we can be sure that he was not happy with Daniel's enemies, but he knew ultimately he was the one responsible. And like Darius, our foolish decisions often haunt us, don't they? And often all we can do is pray and ask God to mercifully and and miraculously intervene when we make foolish, stupid decisions. When the king heard about Daniel, he spent the remaining daylight hours trying to figure out a way to rescue him. Because according to the Eastern or the Eastern custom of 
Eastern custom, the execution was to be carried out on the evening of the day the accusation was made and validated. And Daniel's enemies would not be put off. Verse 15, these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So they had the nerve to return and remind the king that the law Daniel had broken was the law of the Medes and the Persians. It was irrevocable. And therefore, he was bound by the law that he had signed. In verses 16 to 18, we see Daniel's punishment. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. The king had no choice but to follow through with the execution, and and so no doubt, very reluctantly, he gave the order for Daniel to be brought in and then cast into the lion's den. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who defied any god to deliver the three Hebrews from death in the fiery furnace, Darius actually spoke words of encouragement to Daniel. It would seem that he followed Daniel right to the lion's den and his final words to him were, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Humanly speaking, Daniel was left all alone to face his fate. Yet the king's last words to Daniel pointed to a a higher source of help. God The God who promised in Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We read in verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. A stone was put in place over the mouth of the den and it was sealed by the king and no man dared tamper with it. And this may actually have been to protect Daniel as much as to make sure that no one tried to rescue him. Darius knew Daniel had powerful enemies who might kill him if perchance the lions did not. Verse 18, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. The king suffered more than Daniel. I mean, this thing that he had done was was one of those matters you just cannot stop thinking about. And we can imagine what was going on in the king's mind, going through his mind that night. You know, how could I have been so foolish An innocent man is suffering tonight because of my stupidity. And the king was in misery and his thoughts would not give him any rest. His sleep fled from him, it says. He didn't sleep at all that night. How could he? He had been deceived by his officers. His most trusted servant had been set up, falsely accused, and and then cast into the lion's den as a result of a law that he signed. And as powerful as he was, 
Darius was powerless to rescue Daniel. And there's no doubt in my mind that Daniel had a much better night's rest than Darius. We see Daniel's deliverance from the den in verses 19 to 23. So after a fitful night, the king no doubt was glad when the sun began to rise and we're told in verses 19 and 20, then at daybreak the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? <laughs> and you wonder if Darius was really expecting an answer. I mean, I don't know. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. You wonder if the king didn't stagger at that moment and almost fall over. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And Daniel's reply proved that his God was indeed living and able to deliver him. And the implication that God is, that, that God is the, the living God and, and that it rewards those who trust Him was the most important discovery that Darius could make that day. When Daniel was cast into the lion's den, God sent His angel who not only shut the lion's mouths, but kept them from harming him in any way. And it's very possible that the angel in this miracle was the same person as the fourth man in the fiery furnace, the pre-incarnate Son of God, but we don't know for sure. Daniel was kept safe throughout the night, and he gave glory to God for delivering him, and, and he reiterated that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. And when Daniel said, I was found blameless before him, he was not, again, he was not implying that, that he was sinlessly perfect but that in this matter he had been obedient to the Lord. He was innocent of any sin against the Lord and any crime against the king. He, he was not guilty of the charge of disloyalty to the king. He had done no harm, literally no hurtful act to the king. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den, first part of verse 23. He was exceedingly glad. Well, you bet he was. First, because he still had his trusted governor available for service. And secondly, he was relieved that he was not going to have to live with, with the guilt and the memories associated with Daniel's death and the deceitfulness of his officials. And so with great pleasure, with exceeding gladness, the king gave orders to remove Daniel from the lion's den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. When his three Hebrew friends were delivered from the fiery furnace, neither their clothes nor their hair were singed. They didn't even have the smell of smoke. 
In the same way, when Daniel was lifted out of that lion's den, he was, he was unscathed. He didn't even have a scratch. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I mean, Daniel was preserved through faith. Though his cause was righteous, and though he was unjustly accused, those things in themselves did not protect him from the lions. Daniel needed a living, abiding faith in the true and the living God, even in the most difficult circumstances. As one man said, though they were savage and hunger-starved, yet Daniel was kept from the paws and jaws of these many fierce, savage lions by the power of God through faith. The power of God sent an angel to protect Daniel in response to a prayer of faith coming from a consistent, abiding walk. And this perhaps is the incident the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he speaks of those who by faith stop the mouths of lions in Hebrews 11.33. God openly honored Daniel's faith for the purpose of manifesting his great power and glory. So Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, spared from a violent, horrible death. But that is not always the case. Sometimes God may choose to be glorified by permitting a trusted servant to be martyred. Many millions have been. In verse 24, we see the official's punishment. With much pleasure, the king commanded Daniel to be taken up from the lion's den, but then, with great indignation, we read in verse 24, the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Listen, no one had to encourage Darius to do this. He was more than ready and willing to bring justice to bear upon those who plotted against Daniel. And so the king ordered their arrest, the arrest of, of, of the men who maliciously accused Daniel along with their families, and he had every single one of them cast into the den of lions. In fact, Darius probably would have cast these men into the lion's den even if Daniel had perished because they had not been honest with him. And notice in verse 24 it says, And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. In case some skeptic tried to explain Daniel's miraculous deliverance by suggesting that, well, perhaps the lion's had the flu, they weren't feeling well that day, or, or they weren't hungry, or, or perhaps they were just old, toothless lions. No, we're, we're told here that the lions devoured Daniel's enemies and their families. They could not harm Daniel, but they performed just as expected with anyone else, thus proving it genuinely was angelic protection from God that saved Daniel. 
like Haman in the book of Esther. Daniel's accusers died in the same trap they set for Daniel. You see, God not only delivers his people from their enemies, he also delivers their enemies to the judgment they deserve for oppressing his people. But it may not always happen in this life. However, if they remain in an unsaved state, it will surely happen in the life to come. And the king issued a new decree in verses 25 to 27. In response to God's miraculous deliverance of Daniel, look what the king said. Then King Darius, or Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so the king's decree really is, is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's. It's addressed to all the people of his kingdom and, and really anyone, anyone else who, who would hear and, and heed it. And it acknowledged the God of Daniel as, as sovereign. But Daniel's God is a far greater king than he, because Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. And Daniel's God, his, his kingdom is much greater than Darius's earthly kingdom. God's kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Daniel's God delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He is the one who delivered Daniel, and he is the one men should fear and worship. And this is quite a re remarkable decree from a pagan king. But it should be noted that Darius did not call Yahweh the only God. And so some might wonder, was, you know, was Darius converted? Not likely. But we don't know for sure. Eternity will certainly reveal it. And then in verse 28, we have a summary statement about Daniel. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And so in spite of his enemies trying to destroy him, Daniel survived and, and prospered during the reigns of Darius and Cyrus. And we're not told how long Daniel lived. It was probably at least until the third year of Cyrus' reign or about 536 B.C., but we, we don't know for sure. But whenever it was, Daniel was, was a man rich in years, rich in faithfulness and, and service to God. And his deliverance from the lion's den is, is a great story, even with repetition. And what are some of the things that we can learn from this text? Well, number one, that Christians who desire to live for God in this world should expect persecution. Daniel was persecuted by his peers 
because of his faith in God and the practice of his faith. Daniel's godliness posed a, a serious threat to his corrupt peers. Men who used their positions to benefit at the expense of their king. You see, whenever holy living threatens the sinful lifestyle of others, persecution can be expected in one form or another. The New Testament confirms the lesson we learned from Daniel. Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ shall what? Suffer persecution. Loved ones, don't think that the the rapture uh, is going to mean we escape uh, all uh, suffering and and persecution. Not at all. It only means we're going to escape the wrath that God is going to pour out on an unbelieving world. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse as, as the return of Christ gets nearer and nearer. And we, no doubt, are going to experience suffering and persecution. The Bible instructs us to expect persecution for living in a way that pleases God. Why? Because the way we live, the things we believe, are diametrically opposed to the things the world believes. I mean, we're on a collision course with the world and with the culture. We should expect persecution for living in a way that is pleasing to God. There will also be times of official persecution. When governments and the laws of the land are going to be used to oppose and oppress Christians. We're seeing actually a bit of that now. And so it was for a short time in Daniel's life, and it's been that way down through history, and will be even more so as the last days draw near. And as Americans, we've never known governmental opposition and persecution because of the gospel and the practice of our faith. Until now. We're seeing the beginnings of it, the very beginnings of it, and it's only going to get worse. I received a newsletter Friday from Pacific Justice Institute. Let me read you a portion of it. Last Thursday, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito stated during a speech before the Federalist Society that in certain quarters, religious liberty is fast becoming a disfavored right and is viewed by some as not a cherished freedom, which is often just an excuse for bigotry and can't be tolerated, even when there is no evidence that anybody has been harmed. Alito then noted cases where coronavirus restrictions uh, blatantly discriminate against houses of worship in California and Nevada were actually upheld by the Supreme Court, stating that in both cases the rationale was that the court should defer to the governors. Alito continued that this deference meant that Nevada treated casinos more favorably than houses of worship. Two weeks ago, Santa Clara County uh, authorities filed a lawsuit against Calvary Chapel Pastor or Calvary Chapel San Jose Senior Pastor Mike McClure. Pastor McClure personally faces at least a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar fine for an alleged violation of, of Governor Newsom's 
and, and the county's restrictions on maximum occupancy for in-person meeting for church services because they've been meeting since the middle of May, just as we have. The church, McClure said, cares about the whole body. He said he was not forcing anyone to come to church in person. I don't want to break the law, but I'm also called to preach the gospel. Acknowledging the fines and legal challenge, McClure told his congregation, there are people who are accusing us that we are trying to kill people, that we don't care about people. That's the farthest thing from the truth. Over the past five months, not one congregant has contracted COVID-19. They have contributed zero to the infection rate of this county. He said there, there could be a restraining order against the church by the following Sunday, and that when congregants come, he said, you may be breaking the court order, and they may arrest you, give you a fine or a citation. On November 6th, San Diego Superior Court Judge Joel R. Wolfield ordered San Diego to reopen strip clubs, even as local officials cracked down on churches. The owners of two strip clubs argued that their business is legally protected speech guaranteed by the First Amendment, the same argument that San Diego churches have been making about their own services. And Brad Dacus said, toward the end of the letter, essential services like abortion mills, casinos, and strip clubs are treated more favorably than churches. Almost certainly one unfortunate thing that will carry on after this election is decided is the continued unfair treatment of religious individuals and organizations. And he's exactly right. Loved ones, it's only going to get worse. American Christians have have always thought of themselves as law-abiding Christians, and so we should be. We should be. But when governmental opposition to our faith and, and service to Jesus Christ comes, we must, like Daniel, disobey those laws which directly conflict with God's law, and then we must be willing to suffer the consequences. And everybody, you know thinks that's great as long as, as long as it's just the pastor that suffers the consequences. But what will you do when they threaten to arrest you if you come to church? Or if you speak out for Christ, what will you do? Christians in other parts of the world know, know what this is like. Because in just about every other place in the world, they've been suffering persecution since the beginning of the church. And in time, we will be able to better identify with Daniel and his three Hebrew friends. May God give us the grace and the strength to respond in the way that Daniel did to his glory and his honor. Secondly, the account of Daniel is an example of divine deliverance. You know, Daniel's persecution didn't come about because of his sin, but rather because of his righteousness. He suffered because he was godly. And when Daniel was found guilty under the law of the Medes and the Persians, the king was unable to save him, but God's hand was not hindered. And as Daniel went to the lion's den, God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths, 
And he also brought about the destruction of Daniel's enemies. I mean, the account of Daniel's deliverance uh, is written to, to assure believers of every age that God is able to deliver his people even when men are unable to do so. I mean, what the king of the most powerful kingdom on earth could not do, God did. And it was not a problem at all. God knows how to deliver his own from judgment and also how to deliver his enemies to judgment. But even though we can be confident that God will deliver the righteous and destroy the wicked, we may not be certain how and when he will do so. Because there are many times when God allows the wicked to prosper in this life, leaving their day of judgment for eternity. Read Psalm 73. It's what puzzled Asa until he said, God showed me their end. And there are many times when God allows Christians to suffer persecution and death. God does not always rescue his servants. I mean, some he delivers through death rather than from death. In Hebrews 11, we find two kinds of saints. Those who were delivered from danger or death, and secondly, those who were delivered through danger or death. You know, Paul, writing in Philippians chapter 1, writing as a prisoner in Rome, expressed that, that he was certain of his ultimate deliverance. But he was ready and willing to be delivered either from death or through it. It made him no difference. He only wanted to honor Christ, whether in life or in death. I mean, God purposes for some to suffer and even to die to accomplish his purposes. And others, he delivers for his purposes. My goodness, Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, absolutely without sin, God incarnate. And yet God didn't spare his own son, did he? But rather delivered him up to suffer and to die. God calls some to win by living, while others are called to win by dying. But in life or death, God rules and reigns, and we're called to serve Him. We don't ever want to presume that God will always keep the righteous from persecution and death because we would be wrong. But we can always be certain that God will deliver us whether in life or in death. And since our hope is not for earthly pleasure or success, but rather for the heavenly city and God's eternal blessings, we can face either life or death with joy and confidence and, and with a peace of God that passes all understanding, which will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And God will deliver his people, and he will also deliver the wicked to judgment. And the same God who delivered Daniel from the lion's mouths will also deliver us in his way and in his time. Thirdly, we see in this passage that, that Daniel's prayer life is both a rebuke and an encouragement to Christians today. I mean, Daniel had a lifelong pattern of praying toward Jerusalem three times a day. Anyone who knew anything about Daniel seemed to know this. 
I mean, how many of us could claim to be as faithful in our prayer life as Daniel? Does anyone who knows anything about us know that we're faithful in our prayer life, know that we're faithful when it comes to our worshiping God on a regular basis? How many of us could claim the faithfulness of Daniel in our prayer life? I mean, what missing ingredient explains the difference between Daniel's consistency and our apathetic attitude toward prayer? Well, probably several answers. But let me just mention one. According to verse 10, when Daniel prayed, he gave thanksgiving. You know, his prayers contained a lot of thanksgiving. We see that again in chapter 9. You see, Daniel was very much aware that, that every provision, every circumstance, every event, including those which came from his enemies, came from the hand of God for his good and for God's glory. God's blessings were were so rich, so frequent, and and so gracious that Daniel couldn't possibly cease praying for 30 days. He'd get too far behind in, in his praise and thanksgiving and never get caught up. And Daniel also saw himself as continually dependent upon God for his every need. That's not something we see among American Christians with all their affluence. Daniel saw himself as powerless. Powerless without the provisions that God gave to him daily. He saw himself as unable to please God and his earthly superiors apart from God's grace. He prayed because he was aware of how great his needs were. He, he had to pray because he knew that only God could meet his needs. And this is why our prayer lives, mine included, are so weak and so anemic and so sporadic and undisciplined. And we don't fail to go to bed at night because we know we need to. And our body reminds us of of being tired. We don't fail to eat because we know we must. We don't fail to take time for ourselves, time for pleasure. But we really do not sense the desperate need to pray. And that is due in part to the fact that we fail to grasp our daily dependence upon God and His provision for us. All too often, we forget that it is only God who can meet our fundamental needs. And when we do sense the need for help, we usually begin by going to others first and God last. Daniel knew he had great needs. He knew only God could meet those needs. And so he made daily prayer 
a priority in his life, and loved ones, so should we. We're only going to be able to make it through the difficult days ahead of us if if we're living in utter dependence upon God and our prayer life is the indication of that dependence. And our lack of prayer is a very loud declaration of our independence. May God help us to be like Daniel. In Sunday school years ago, and maybe they still sing it, I don't know, there was a little song that that we sang as children, Dare to be a Daniel. Anybody remember that song? Nobody? Man, I'm really old. (laughs) And just let me read a, a couple of lines from it. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few. All hail to Daniel's band. May we be like Daniel. May we be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. May we not cower in fear or bow before government demands when they conflict with the commands of God. May we live our lives in absolute and utter dependence upon God, because whether we realize it or not, we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon him. May God help us to realize that. And may God convict us of our lack of prayer. Maybe that's not an issue for you. And if not, praise the Lord. Be encouraged. But I think by and and large, lack of prayer is a problem for every believer. Uh, Lack of attendance at prayer meetings is a huge problem in every church. I don't care if it's a celebrity pastor or not. Prayer meetings are... Well, it's very sad. May God help us. We wonder why the church, we wonder why our lives are in the shape they're in, our marriages. We wonder why the church is in the shape that it's in, our country. Could it be because of a lack of prayer of God's people, lack of commitment? because we have for so long lived for ourselves, taking care of ourselves, ignoring glaring needs around us. God help us. May God help us all. May God help this country. May God have mercy upon this country. May God have mercy upon the church. And I firmly believe that if and when we're already experiencing God's judgment of abandonment, have been for many years. But when we begin to experience 
serious judgment upon this nation. It is first judgment upon the church. Because judgment begins in the house of God. The church is the moral conscience of the nation. So what does that say about the church in this country? Dare to be a Daniel. Let's stand and pray. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. Set free, and Lord, give to us a passion for your word that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530. 530- 547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Pro-